On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, Talk to us at Cordell and Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. This is part two of our episode with Scott Hartley. I've got a story in the book that's just a short uh, snippet, but it's actually a story about my father, uh, who at the age of 69 was basically able to figure out how to learn Xcode, uh, write his own iOS mobile app, and deploy it in the Apple App Store. This is another episode of Innovation and Leadership, where we interview all kinds of high achievers, from world-class musicians to CEOs, authors, and pro athletes. Try to find the common elements of success, no matter what you're working on. Scott is the author of The Fuzzy and the Techie, which um, you should really listen to part one of our episode, and he'll dive into those terms and where they come from at Stanford. Um, Venture capitalist, former innovation fellow, uh, presidential innovation fellow at the White House, Worked at Google and Facebook, different places. Um, Scott, for anybody who missed part one, can you give us just the quickest recap of the book? And then would you mind sharing maybe a story? Yeah. Well, thanks again, uh, Jess, for having me. Um, So The Fuzzy and the Techie, uh, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World, was really kind of a book uh, rooted in my own experience as a fuzzy, as a political science guy who found his way into Google and Facebook and into venture capital. Um, and then sort of my observation in VC where I was meeting with lots of different entrepreneurs and found that, you know, the, the context for the problems that they were solving uh, were really sort of more important in some ways than the commodity, which was the technology they were using to you know, build the mobile app or whatever, um, was, was really unlocking uh, this sort of tech toolbox for lots of different people. And that some of the most interesting companies that we were looking at and I was meeting with, you know, on a daily basis were being founded by people that were, you know, majors in theater arts or in political science or in literature or history, um, you know, definitely partnering with a technologist using techie tools to, you know, scale products and, 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 and build mobile apps and things. But, uh, you know, it wasn't nearly as much of a walled garden as I think the narrative had been sort of propagated before that you had to study STEM, you have to, you know, have studied computer science since you were 13 years old. If you didn't drop out of middle school, you're doomed, you'll never be a tech founder. Um, and that was really at odds with what I was seeing sort of on a day-to-day basis. Um, and some of these, you know, really amazing, really valuable um, billion-dollar companies were being started by, you know, people I feature in the book, like Katrina Lake, who founded Stitch Fix, uh, who studied political science and, and economics, um, to Caitlin Gleason, who's sort of the lead-off story in the book. Um, Caitlin was a theater uh, arts major from Stony Brook out in Long Island, and um she was just somebody who had this uh, real ability to take words on a page and the script and sort of imbue it with emotion. And she found that that was the same skill set um, that had led her to Broadway that was really effective in sales. And so she used that skill set in sales to be, you know, become part of a y, y Combinator startup. Uh, she then sort of went to YC in Mountain View and Paul Graham said, hey, you know, you're really a talented uh, young lady. Maybe you should think about starting your own company. 
And uh, she said, well, what would I do? You know, I'm not a technologist. I don't have a fancy degree from, from MIT. He said, you know, forget it. Just go to the library, uh, you know, pull up Apple uh, software developer kit, you know, read it front to back. If you have any questions, you know, post things online like Stack Overflow and Quora. There's all these different Q&A sites on the, on the internet where you can really sort of DIY, learn, learn it yourself. And uh, she was able to learn enough that she could sort of speak, you know, speak the speak and talk the talk of tech so that she was able to kind of hire a couple of developers to help her out. And, you know, fast forward about five years, uh, she's raised 25 million bucks. She's got dozens of engineers who work for her uh, in her Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn offices. And, you know, the book is just sort of features a lot of stories like that about Caitlin and Katrina, um, people like Zach Bookman, who uh, founded OpenGov, you know, came from a background in transparency and law um, and political science and, you know, built a, a tech data platform that's providing sort of transparency for municipal finance and, and government. Um, you know, just all sorts of different amazing ideas that are brought to bear, you know, from people from different backgrounds, not just, you know, the, the STEM major and the coder. Yeah. You know, um, when we, when I got your email about being on the show, it was really the thing that appealed to me, right? As I'm an illustration dropout myself who ended up in mergers and acquisitions at City for a short time and then starting my own, you know, growth capital private equity fund in the energy space. And, um, I will say I almost get like a perverse joy out of uh, people asking me about my educational background and I get to say art school dropout, you know, <laughs> um, because we do have kind of these ruts of like someone who's going to be successful at this needs to have followed this path. Don't you don't you find? Absolutely. Um, and that's really the narrative. I, the myth that I wanted to bust in writing the book uh, was this notion that the technology, which is the world that that I came from. Uh, you know, and still participate in uh, was really this walled garden, this sort of monolith of only technical people. Um, and I really think that, um, you know, so many of the tools that uh, would have required, you know, deep mastery of setting up servers and, and things like that in the 90s to really build the infrastructure of technology have now sort of moved to the application layer where, you know, if you want to spin up servers, really all you've got to do is create an Amazon Web Services account um, and you can sort of buy capacity right there. So there are a lot of things that have become so much more accessible um, that people, even without you know, um, you know, amazing technical degrees, uh, can really deploy and, and build, uh, build apps, build products, um, launch companies. Um, you know, I've got a story in the book that's just a short uh, snippet, but it's actually a story about my father, uh, who at the age of 69 was basically able to figure out how to learn Xcode, uh, write his own iOS mobile app and deploy it in the Apple App Store. Um, and, you know, he's technical enough to be dangerous, but, you know, majored in psychology in college. He's not exactly, you know, uh, the deep techie that, that you would expect. And so I think that the tools have become so much more accessible that this, um, you know, this notion that, that we've got to widen the aperture on who thinks they can participate in, in being an entrepreneur and, and, you know, being part of Silicon Valley uh, is really important because really, you know, we've got enough photo sharing apps. We need people thinking about the big, deep, um, sticky problems that require, you know, maybe studying something other than just technology to even know that they exist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I want to take a bit of a right turn for a minute. Um, when we have authors on, we like to ask a little bit about people's different writing process and, um, before we do that, I want to bring up one thing that I feel like is inherent within your thesis, which is 
you know, getting a fuzzy degree isn't enough. Like, cause I have plenty of buddies with art degrees that didn't do anything, right? They actually finished and they still didn't really, uh, um, maybe excel in life, right? Like, um, you obviously have a, a level of uh, tenacity. Um, can you talk about the marathons and the triathlons and, and just even the tenacity of being a writer? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think you're right in, in the, the implicit thesis. It's not, you know, the book is not saying uh, simply study uh, psychology, you know, do nothing uh, else to, to sort of engage with technology and expect to become uh, the next Mark Zuckerberg. Although I will say that Zuck, um, he sort of mischaracterized as being just a coder when in fact, you know, he did study psychology at Harvard. That's uh, the major of his older sister, Randy, uh, who was my boss at Facebook and, you know, a number of other things that he studied that sort of show that he was a curious individual um, going to Exeter, a liberal arts, you know, high school um, before, you know, enrolling in a liberal arts college. And so, um, you know, I think it, it is about having this broad curiosity and, you know, studying literature and philosophy and these different subjects, but then also sort of uh, engaging with technology and being technical enough to be dangerous, uh, to be able to talk the talk at least, to know where the building blocks are, where you can start assembling the building blocks that are, you know, they're getting bigger and bigger, but they still require some assembly. Um, but that tenacity, uh, for sure, you know, I think in my own sort of hobbies uh, from, you know, long distance running and and soccer um, to to the book writing process. For me, you know, the book writing process was really uh, far less glamorous than I think most people think. Uh, writing a book is flying off to to Bali and you know sitting in a, a beautiful cafe and and working on the book you know while on vacation or something. And uh, for me, it was much more like Groundhog's Day, where it was this very rote uh, you know scripted routine where every day I did the same thing. I got a single black coffee went to a cafe with, uh, you know, without Wi-Fi some days uh, that, you know, I, I would just write until my laptop battery would die <laughs> because that was the forcing function to get four or five hours of writing done where I knew that there was a clock against me. Um, so little things that you kind of do to trick yourself into having urgency, um, I think are really important. And the other thing is, you know, creating structure. And, and I think once you can structure a problem and think through, you know, an outline, okay, I've got to write 10, 20 page papers, it becomes much more palatable than thinking about this really abstract concept, which is a book that just goes and goes forever, it seems like. Well, I, I want to talk more about this, because I feel like it is maybe an under glamorized part of the process for something that so many people want to accomplish. Um, uh, do you, and I want to ask a question, do you feel like long distance, run, you know, my brother, uh, my best friend growing up and my brother were both long distance runners. Um, so you, you run six marathons, is that right? And Ironmans? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that they are, um, you know, it's funny because they're one in the same and actually I, I used running as a real, uh, part of the process of, of writing the book. And for me, anytime that I got stuck, kind of staring at my laptop, you know, staring above my computer at the wall or whatever it was. Um, I, I just sort of knew I have to get out of this rut. And the way to do that is to go on a run or to go on a walk, you know, a long walk with a podcast playing, a couple podcasts um, would really sort of uh, start fueling ideas. And I generally found I wrote most of the book uh, living in New York and I was living in Brooklyn and I would walk over the Williamsburg Bridge. I'd walk into Manhattan and generally, by the time I was an hour or so into a walk and a couple podcasts, I had so many ideas that I was, you know, listening to my podcasts at, you know, 1.3, 1.4x 
on my my app where I was just sort of absorbing as much information as I could. Um, you know, I'd get to a, a cafe on the on the back end of that walk, and I'd have so many ideas that I'd you know start scribbling them down in notebooks and know that I had to add this to one chapter and move something to another chapter. Um, and I really found that 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 discipline of sort of getting out of the house um, and putting on your shoes uh, was really important for me to sort of get the creativity moving again. Um, so physically moving helped get me mentally moving. Uh, you know, there's a great book called Spark about, uh, I believe it's a Harvard researcher, talks about the brain advantages to exercise as a, as a, you know, a self-stimulant rather than coffee or, or you know, any other kind of stimulant, right? But it also makes me think about the Andrew Smart book, Autopilot. Have you heard of this one about the default mode network? No. Basically, it's this premise that, you know, these researchers who were studying people's brain activity in fMRI machines, they found out that, uh, well, they thought their machines were broken because when people were supposed to be just laying there, these different parts of the brain lit up. And it was, it's essentially the science behind why you should sleep on it or the science behind, you know, why so many great, discoveries have happened while somebody was sitting in a garden or on a walk. And it, it argues for um, giving your brain the opportunity to pull off a focused conscious effort and let it process to come up with better ideas. Um, and it just chronicles, you know, some, some great thinkers and how they intentionally did that. And, uh, you know, the value they felt like it helped bring them in uh, coming up with above average stuff. Um, so just before we leave off on this, because, uh, you know, I think many people get a little bit of inspiration in, in the specifics. So let's talk about a couple of things. So you did the, you did the big long hour law. Was it an hour or an hour there and an hour back before you'd write? It was generally, um, I'd probably walk, walk for walk or run for about 90 minutes. I really thought, um, you know, getting about 30 minutes into a walk was right about when I started kind of getting, into a flow state where I was really kind of letting my mind, my body was feeling good. Um, so I think having enough of a, a window where I could do that for an hour to 90 minutes was really important. Um, not to mention, you know, you just feel great when you finally get to your destination. You, you know, you may feel like sitting back down again and getting back in front of the computer, which, you know, after a four or five hour stint in the morning, um, you know, you may, you don't really want to do that anymore. And so I, I, I treated the writing process as almost trying to do double days or triple days. So it reminded me a little bit of training for a triathlon because when you train for a triathlon, generally you're doing, um, you know, brick workouts where you're doing uh, a run and then a bike, or you're doing um, maybe something in the morning like swimming and then maybe biking after work in the evening. So you're doing kind of two, two sports a day. Um, generally, you know, two sessions a day. And so I was trying to always do two to three sessions of writing a day um, because, you know, I'd, I would do my morning routine. I do the walk. I would do an afternoon, maybe a couple hours where I would reorganize part of my document or something like that. And then, you know, generally I'd have a normal life in the, in the afternoon and then maybe in the evening, um, you know, kind of late at night over, over a beer or something, I would, you know, write again for another two to three hours. And so that was kind of my process and really the book for me, um, start to finish from signing the contract to delivering the manuscript was four months. Um, so that was a very fast process. Um, the, you know, the proposal for a nonfiction book where you kind of create the business case for what you're going to say, who you're going to interview, um, how you think through the problem, that actually was a tougher challenge in some ways for me because that's sort of where you've got real blank canvas. Um, so I spent about a year on the proposal. Um, which was about a 40-page document. And then 
about uh, four months on you know the subsequent 300 pages. Well, uh, so that sounds really interesting. I mean, and you know, for people who don't know, let's bring up your your book has been highly successful, right? Your Financial Times Book of the Month, Business Book of the Month, winning awards from Financial Times and McKinsey, uh, and just you know, writing in general. If I understand right, you've been featured in Harvard Business Review and Wall Street Journal, but you've you've contributed for Ford's Financial Times Foreign Policy. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think for me, writing has always been uh, a way to crystallize thoughts, and it was really more of an obligation. I, I felt like when I was in, in venture capital, uh, you know, one of the joys is you're meeting with amazing companies and amazing people kind of hour after hour. And it was a travesty because, you know, uh, some of my colleagues would say, well, you've met 10 companies in the internet of things space. What do you think about the space? And I realized that I, I didn't have any crystallized thoughts of my own sort of high level trends and kind of a macro viewpoint on that ecosystem. And so I would start writing to try to coalesce what are the you know what are the key themes of these twenty companies I've maybe met in a certain space or genre, um, and so for me writing became the only way that I could kind of crystallize my own thoughts, and then also have a package um, that if somebody asked me and said, hey, what do you think about um, retail innovation? I could say, well, read this article that I wrote in Forbes that summarizes what I think about retail innovation. Um, so it became a very efficient way also of being able to communicate with other people. Yeah, well. Um, and I don't want to get on a tangent because I really want to answer this one question about that 40-page document that got you the book deal. You know, um, if you had insights for other people, I mean, you took a year to get that right. What what was that roller coaster like or what do you wish you would have figured out earlier or what advice would you have for the rest of us who might need to write a book pitch like that? Yeah, well, you know, to the listeners, I, I promise this was not a planted question, but uh, I actually wrote a, a long uh piece on LinkedIn Pulse. Um, and <laughs> okay, and the, title, the title of this is called How to Write a Nonfiction Book. Um, and yeah, obviously search uh, Scott Hartley, How to Write a Nonfiction Book, and you should be able to find that. But it's a pretty long uh, outline of all the steps um, that I took to, you know, and, and sort of what the proposal looks like. Um, what I, you know, I received recommendations from a lot of retired editors at various, you know, publishing houses. And they said, well, this was the secret of, you know, of different uh, book proposals that I would buy in the business space. You know, here's kind of how to outline it. Um, generally, uh, it's sort of a, a high-level overview of the concept, a really short, crisp outline, you know, with uh, interesting chapter summaries, um, and then more, a more fleshed-out outline where you sort of spend three or four pages per chapter where you kind of explain all the all the meat, uh, all the details of, you know, who you might talk to, what studies you might cite. And that's a lot of, you know, research right there. Um, Because really, I think what the editors are looking for is, uh, one, you know, is this a compelling idea? Can you write, do you maybe have a platform where you can share this with some credibility? Um, And then also, you know, is this an accordion where I can sort of see expanding this 40-page document out into 250 to 300 pages? Um, And if you don't have a lot of meat sort of in the proposal, they might say, Hey, you know, this is a great Atlantic article. Maybe you should submit it to a long-form magazine, but it's not really a book. And so you really got to show that there's enough meat on the bone, um, you know, in, in in so far as your research, um, and also, you know, kind of cultivating a, a platform where you have some credibility to talk about, you know, whatever it is that 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 you're interested in. Um, so I want to talk about a principle that you just brought up of going to the source. Um, 
So I think some of us sometimes feel intimidated to go to the people who actually do what we wish we were doing, or, you know, the people who seem like the keepers, of the keys for that world. Um, but it sounds like you went to these folks who had made these decisions, not, you know, hat in hand, begging for them to pick you, but more as the learner of, you know, hey, can you tell me how to navigate this world? Did you find that that helped you at all in getting their attention, that you weren't there to beg for them to buy your book? Yeah. You know, there's there's an adage, at least in the in the venture world, where you say, you know, ask a VC for money and you'll get advice. Ask a VC for advice and you'll probably get money. And uh, it's it's kind of true, I think, in a lot of uh, a lot of domains. And so, you know, go to uh, an experienced editor and ask them, hey, what's the what's the right way to position a proposal? How should I be framing this, you know, interesting idea? Or how do you think through um, what a business book should look like? Um, they're, you know, they're very willing to have a, a coffee or a Skype call or, you know, a, a conversation with you probably about that, but saying, uh, you know, can you introduce me to so-and-so, the head of, you know, portfolio at Random House or Houghton Mifflin, um, they're, they're probably going to kind of step back and say, well, you know, I'm not really in the business of, of doing favors like that. And so I think if you just ask for advice, um, often you'll kind of unlock a lot of, uh, you know, capacity for people to be really generous with their time. Um, and I think it, you know, going back to the techie, uh, you know, not just the fuzzy, there are so many amazing tools you can also use, um, you know, whether it's, you know, paying uh, for LinkedIn premium or, you know, various, uh, I don't know if I can recommend them, but there are, you know, tools that can help scrape email addresses, you know, off of websites. Yeah, you or, can recommend them. Let's hear, like let's, <laughs> let's hear your yeah. favorite ones. Well, so if I, they've probably been shut down by now because generally they're kind of against the terms of service, I think, of what LinkedIn likes happening on its platform because it likes its walled garden of, of keeping you coming back for more. But, um, you know, you can you can basically run scrapers. There was one out of Paris uh, that was called scrap.io um, and effectively just uh, run queries on LinkedIn and pull email addresses off LinkedIn, you know, and then using drip uh, email campaigns, uh, you know, you could let's say you want to get a job at the New Yorker. Um, there's no reason why you can't scrape every person who has New Yorker on their resume, you know, anywhere on LinkedIn. And if you email a hundred people, uh, you know, you might get five or 10 responses of people that might have coffee with you. And so I think it's just a, a scrappy way of, uh, thinking about, you know, any, uh, anything that you're passionate about or curious about, you know, you can, you can probably figure out a tech tool, um, that will help you accomplish uh, some of that, you know, some of that uh, scrappiness. Yeah. And so just to verify there, did you cold call people? Was it more just cold emailing people? Like for someone who doesn't have those connections, what what's your advice of, you know, somebody who, even if you're just only going to them for advice, what, reach out on Twitter. What, what was your, yeah. what's your weapon of choice? I found, yeah, exactly. I think Twitter is a really effective medium. If if you're not if you're bombarding somebody, but let's say you're sharing really relevant content and you might be tagging a person on Twitter, I've been really you know warmly surprised by the number and, and receptivity of, of people that are pretty inaccessible uh, to you know to most anyone. People like you know Mark Cuban uh, basically agreeing to receive a copy of my book. Um, and so things like that that through Twitter um, you can sort of ace you know asymmetrically get in touch with somebody that's, you know, far more uh, powerful or important perhaps, you know, than, than one of us. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to use that platform. I also found, um, and, and I outlined this in the LinkedIn uh, piece for the book specifically was if you read the acknowledgement sections of books that are similar to the one you might want to write, 
um, people say a lot of great things in their acknowledgement section. They usually spell out exactly who's helped them every, at every step of the way. So, you know, when I pick up a book generally now, the first thing that I go read is the acknowledgements. And I say, you know, who is this person's agent? Uh, who did they work with? Who's their publisher? You know, within this publishing house, uh, who specifically did, did their copy editing or what whatnot? And you can generally um, figure out uh, from, from, from the acknowledgement sections of books uh, who's been helpful to a particular author. And so what I did um, pretty early on was just created you know, a, a Google spreadsheet where I listed uh, different authors and then all the different people, the agencies that they worked with, the agents that they worked with, the editors that they worked with, the publishing houses that they worked with. And I had a pretty good um, sort of uh, map of, of where books were coming from and who was involved in a lot of books that I found interesting. And so, you know, that's a scrappy way of kind of getting beneath the surface. And then even if you're not connected with any of those people directly, um, chances are through, you know, their own websites or Twitter or maybe LinkedIn, um, there's some way to get in touch with one of them. And I think if you get in touch with one or two of them, then you kind of unlock that world where maybe they introduce you to more. And and on Twitter, is it, uh, you know, how do you for you building a friendship on Twitter, you know, it's, it's not as familiar for some folks, you know, is it, are you retweeting some of their stuff? Are you, how do you, how do you not come across as a stalker, but intentionally try to form a, a relationship? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a pro at this, but I, I have met people that uh, have, have met a number of uh, friends and, and colleagues on platforms like Twitter. And I'm always kind of curious for how they were able to do that. I think generally for me, you know, if I find something that's interesting and, and relevant, um, for example, if it's a, a piece by a journalist, you know, I'll, I'll retweet it and maybe say something insightful, you know, that relates to my book and I'll tag that person uh, in the post and maybe I'll do that a couple times. And, you know, generally if, if that person has any engagement on Twitter, um, which they might not, you know, and, and if they have any interest in connecting, they might add me back. And once you're sort of mutually connected, then you can message somebody. Uh, and, you know, messaging uh, is sort of like a direct email. And so, you know, I would drop uh, people a note and then things would sort of convert over to email, convert over to phone calls, maybe convert into a coffee chat. And, you know, again, it's just a, it's a funnel. And so you can't expect every interaction to lead to, you know, a coffee or an insightful answer. But, you know, if you do it 100 times, it might lead to five uh, things that so I think persistence is really key. Um, and just kind of systematizing for you, you know, what what's authentic and, and what works for you. No, I think uh, the map you described is genius. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about tenacity before, and it shows up again here. Well, listen, you've been super generous with your time as kind of a closing question here for the end of, of episode two. You know, besides people going to Amazon.com or or um, Audible, um, best places for people to reach out to you. Let's talk about that again. I know we covered it in part one, but your website. Yeah, the best places to to find me um, on Twitter. I'm Scott E Hartley, and uh, also at Fuzzy Techie. And the website for the book is fuzzytechie.com. Um, and generally, you know, I think uh, I'm, I'm very curious and open to hearing from listeners, you know, if you're struggling as a company or kind of with your curriculum or whatever it might be with kind of blending the fuzzy and the techie or how do you think through, um, you know, uh, providing broad skill sets to, to effectively solve problems, um, you know, 
I'm, I'm open to sort of engaging uh, with the problems that, that you see and, and thinking through how the book might be you know, relevant for, for yeah. what you're facing. Well, and, and so for my final question here, thinking about any aspect of the different ways we've, we've talked about this subject um, on, on either of these episodes, you know, a lot of times we like to ask our guests, um, we've got this charity, Child Rescue, it's helprescueachild.org. We're trying to combat child trafficking. Um, you know, we, we've got a prevention campaign by high school kids for high school kids in America. We helped build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. Um, in the past, we've paid for law enforcement trainings or had some of our guys from the, um, with interesting backgrounds uh, help out as we've supported undercover rescue missions with law enforcement in developing world countries. If you were us and you were trying to to really get more people involved in this cause and more people supporting our organization specifically, um, do you have any thoughts that come to come to mind right off the bat? Well, so aside from my my web scraper uh, technology tools that I've recommended, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say you know kind of true true to the thesis of the book, um, think about sort of uh, effective storytelling you know through data and through design and and sort of from a fuzzy and a techie. Um, lens sort of. Um, so I think that there's a lot of emphasis these days on, on big data and on, on using, uh, you know, data and information to sort of uh, convince people of, of one thing or another and sort of taking a step back and saying, you know, even even data has bias in it. How can we think through, um, you know, the, the questions that we're asking of data, the questions that we're, that we're posing uh, in, in, in sort of how we want to think through these problems? You know, and then also this side of how do we present this story meaningfully so that it resonates with uh, the type of, you know, viewers or, or customers or, or people that we're trying to get the message in front of. Um, and so I think kind of blending these two sides, I mean, that would be my advice is if, if you're more proficient on, say, uh, using data to provide, you know, argumentation around why people should support um, the organization, you know, think through how can you present that in ways that's... Um, you know, uh, d has data literacy as well as data science, you know, and thinking through the elements of storytelling, the elements of design, um, I think is, a, you know, a really important component in addition to all the uh, the web scraping and, and various techie tools that I mentioned. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Well, listen, um, appreciate all the time you've given us here. Um, maybe as a, as the final thing, what what's one more piece of advice or what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever got or, or how would you want to close here today? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, one of the best pieces of, of advice that I think I've ever gotten is, is just treat, um, you know, treat all people uh, equally and, and with respect. And something that I that I learned uh, a lot in, in India when I was with Google, um, just, you know, there being sort of the expat in the office, um, all eyes were on me in, in a lot of capacities. And I found that, you know, even, uh, you know, getting a chance to, to engage with <clears throat> the person working in the restroom was really a chance to sort of uh, dispel myths that, you know, foreigners were bad or that Americans uh, lacked sort of cultural grace and, uh, and just sort of uh, trying to myth bust that as well. And I think that was advice that I received, you know, really, really young was try to treat all people with equal respect and regardless of role, regardless of, you know, grit and determination or uh, success or not. Um, I think that's really important. I love it. Thanks again for all your time, and I uh, hope everybody goes and buys the fuzzy and the techie. Thanks so much, Jess. Okay. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and 
Trent Mano. I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.